This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Simon Seabag Montefiore is an acclaimed historian. His knowledge of the Middle East, Russian and Soviet history in particular, has been called encyclopedic. In his most recent book, he turned that encyclopedic mind towards nothing short of a history of the entire world. This time, told through the stories of specific families throughout human history and across international borders, just as those borders themselves fluctuate along with the rise and fall of empires and the families that ruled over them. And by the way, the book, called The World, A Family History of Humanity, is also very funny, complete with characters such as Basil the Unibrow Horse Whisperer. Because let's admit it, Humanity also has a deeply absurd streak. Now, Seabag Montefiore's book was first published in 2022, but it's been recently reissued along with a new conclusion. And it's that conclusion we'd like to focus on today, because in it, he writes about what he calls the beginning of the end of the 70-year peace. And humanity's creeping and possibly inexorable return to a time where people around the world aren't enjoying the fruits of liberty and democracy, but instead are subject to the mercurial, self-interested actions of dynastic rule. Simon Seabag Montefiore, welcome back to On Point. It's great to be um, to be with you today, Magna. How are you? I'm I'm doing quite well and looking forward to this conversation. But you know, before we get to um, the new addition to or new addition and addition to your book, Simon. Since I mentioned Basil the Unibrow Horse Whisperer, I think we need to tell uh, everyone listening a little bit more about who this person is. Tell us. Oh well, Basil um, Basil the First was the first of the Macedonian dynasty in the uh, in in the uh, Byzantine Empire and um, and uh, in the in the in the Middle Ages, and he was a fascinating character who came to power essentially because of his his um, brilliant ability to um, to calm um, horses, to groom horses, and through that he became great friends um, with the emperor, perhaps even homosexual lovers with the emperor, and um, the emperor promoted him to Caesar, and in the end, um, Basil. Um, savagely assassinated the emperor himself and seized power and founded an extremely successful dynasty, one of the most successful dynasties in the Byzantine Empire. Because the Byzantine Empire, they never called themselves Byzantine. They called themselves Romoi, the Roman Empire. They were the Eastern Roman Empire. And just one of the many um, vast states that seemed to be eternal um, players in the world game um, for for many centuries that vanished completely. And of course, world history is full of these. And that's why, you know, when one looks at the world today, one has to sort of, one has to realize that states that we think of as completely eternal, um, you know, may not be, uh, may be more temporary than we think. I mean, for example, Russia itself as an empire was only founded by Peter the Great in the early 18th century, Mm -hmm. 1721 to 22. Before that, it was called the Grand Principality of Moscow. And so, you know, Russia itself has only been a big player in the way that we know it today for for 300 years. Very short in comparison to other previous empires that lasted, you know, thousands. So, But this is the thing that I find so compelling about your book and why I'm glad you reissued it with this new conclusion, because history isn't simply events, right? History is the people who precipitate and cause those events and have to experience them. 
as well. So just sticking with uh, uh, Mr. Basil of the, the famed unibrow, what is it about his story that you felt um, justified uh, you know, a chapter in your book? What is it about him and how he ruled that tells us more about ourselves even now? He's a surprising character because he didn't come from the elite. Um, he rose to power through personal connections. Um, he was sponsored by a very powerful princess, um, a, a magnate, a female magnate. Then he was sponsored by the emperor. So his career is really about how patronage, connections, um, coteries uh, form webs of power that can change history. So that's really the significance of him and also the fact that his family ruled for you know, a big chunk and were incredibly successful. And you wouldn't really have expected that from this completely uneducated um, horse groom. Um, so history's full of surprises like that. I mean, the reason why I chose families, and, you know, he's a, he's a classic example of this, is that, you know, most world histories, and we love reading them, are filled with themes, um, lists of commodities and trade routes and new uh, scientific inventions. Um, but the people are missing. And on the other hand, we love biographies that are filled with personal details, but are distorted in that direction too. So what I wanted to do was found, find a way to combine the real global span of world history and the intimacy, the grip, the, the grit, the juice of biography. And this is the way I found to do that. Right. And in, in that conclusion, you, you write that the most successful leaders are visionaries, transcendent strategists, but also improvisers, opportunists, and creatures of bungle and luck. Uh, all those words actually sound very familiar given where we are uh, as a species today. So this is what I, this is what I want to spend quite a bit of time talking about with you, Simon, uh, because you present this idea in the conclusion of this of your book of the 70-year peace and how it may be coming to an end. So what is the 70-year peace in your mind? Well, I mean, I think that, you know, when we look at the world today, people um, are unsettled, confused, um, befuddled almost by what is happening to the world. And what they don't realize um, is that the, what we've really been living through is an exceptional period, um, an anomaly in world history, in which for around 70 to 75 years, the world was governed, um, was controlled, uh, was overseen and policed by essentially by two and then one mega powers. And that was the Soviet Union, United States, and then just the United States. And it, during that period also, um, the reason why a rules-based uh, a rule-based world order came in came into existence was because of the shock of the two great wars, the two world wars ending in 1945, and the terrible things that happened, particularly in the second one. And because of that, within our societies and in the and wo world society in the in the world game, rules were brought in. Now, of course, it wasn't the 70-year peace was not a complete peace. There were many, many brutal wars, many of which are forgotten and which I recount, you know, Angola, Congo, many others, Vietnam. Um, and so it wasn't really a full period of peace. But the two superpowers kept order. So for the first 40 years, 1945 to 85, um, the Soviet Union and, and the United States played a sort of game of chess, two players, from 85 to around two, two, 2015 or the election of Trump 2016, it was a game of solitaire, the unipolarity of the United States. 
And since then, um, we have seen a, a breakdown in that sort of control, that sort of discipline, that sort of order. And it's confusing for us. But in fact, we're returning to the way the world was always run or not run. Mm. I'm glad you mentioned about the fact that the 70-year peace wasn't um, exactly peace everywhere or for everyone. We're going to return to that point uh, a little bit later in the show, Simon. But you you start, when you explain what the 70-year peace is in the book, uh, you actually begin by looking at Russia's invasion of Ukraine as, as a marking point for the possible end of this unprecedented period of peace. Why that moment? It was, it was a very important moment because it was to overturn um, the whole way that international affairs had been organized since 1945, the creation of the United Nations, and since um, the breakup of the Soviet Union in 1991, when Russia had accepted that, the, that the, uh, fifth, all the 15 republics of the Soviet Union became independent states. And that had been recognized in treaties and agreements. Um, and President Putin made a decision, probably probably encouraged by his study of history, his isolation during, during the COVID lockdowns and other factors too. But he made a decision to challenge that whole order. Now, he thought he was going to get away with it, by the way, without any resistance. Um, I also think if he tried it in 2014, he would have got away with it. So I think that he felt that he'd missed an opportunity, but he also felt he saw a unique moment that he would he would be able to achieve this. Um, you know, the EU had broken up. The Americans had withdrawn from Kabul in a humiliating retreat. Um, there was a there was a, a, a slightly comical prime minister of Britain in Boris Johnson. Slightly, and, <laughs> and 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 Ukraine, which he regarded as an as not a real authentic state or nation, had actually elected a comedian as president, and that must have seemed um, to him the final sign that. Um, he would be kicking at a kind of he would be kicking um, a house of cards, and that Ukraine would collapse. And of course, as we know, it didn't. But nonetheless, this changed the international order, and it gave a chance for other powers to um, to empathise with Russia, to ally with Russia, Iran, China, who'd long regarded the rules-based international order as the invention of the capitalist West, mm. um, and so. So the invasion was more than just Russia trying to win back um, a province that it regarded as an essential part of its empire. This became a means for much of the rest of the world to challenge everything that America held dear. Uh, I, I've got a follow-up to that in just a second. But when you mentioned uh, both Boris Johnson and Vladimir Zelensky in the same sentence, uh, you know, Zelensky, <laughs> though a comedian in, you know, in, in his previous uh, profession, a man standing up with great dignity and strength to be to be there for his people and lead them through a war. That as a counterpoint, you know, to Boris Johnson, who was having parties uh, in in London uh, during COVID while the rest of his nation was under threat of arrest if they left their houses. Very interesting, you know, example of what you write about, about how um, you can never really know what happens because leaders roll the dice, right? And, That's uh, right. I mean, I think, I think the, I think the real point you're making is that you know, Boris Johnson was a politician who who turned out to be a comedian, 
And Zelensky was a comedian who turned out to be a statesman. But neither were guaranteed. Exactly. Perhaps no, I'm saying no. Johnson. In Johnson's case, we probably should have seen that coming. But when we, should have. When we come back, Simon, I want to talk to you much more about this conclusion and, and also sort of reach back occasionally to the fam- some of the families that you write about and try to glean some lessons from them about this place that we are uh, you know, as a species now. So Simon Seabag Montefiore is with us today and we'll be right back. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com onpoint. That's Indeed.com onpoint. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. You're back with On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And Simon Seabag Montefiore is with us today. He's an acclaimed British historian, author of Jerusalem, the Biography, amongst many other books. And today we're talking with him about his latest book. It's called The World, A Family History of Humanity. Now, uh, Simon, in your book and in the new conclusion uh, that you've added to it, you write that Putin's invasion of Ukraine is not a new way of exerting power. Its flint-hearted ferocity is a return to a normality to normality in a way that dynasts in this book would recognize as routine. And then you say essentially normal disorder has been rule, uh, resumed. So, so tell us a little bit more about that normality that you talk about, because I would argue that um, obviously exerting power has never gone away amongst the the nation's most power, uh, the world's most powerful groups or nations. Um, even the use of violence to exert that power. Because while the United States had and perhaps still does have extensive soft power, this country itself, uh, even prior, well prior to Putin's invasion of Ukraine, has tried to use conventional use of force to extend power. I mean, it's easy enough to point to both Iraq and Afghanistan. So what's, what's different about that? Well, I mean, that's the that's the argument that um, that the, the autocratic world would make. They would say it's exactly the same, and that Western values are just pure hypocrisy. But if we look at the Putin invasion, of course, I mean, they are Putin is trying to regain Ukraine, believing that the Russian state um, is is you know is meaningless without the possession of of Ukraine, and many Russian leaders have believed that from from. Um, 
the the Tsar Alexei to Peter the his son Peter the Great to Catherine the Great um, and Prince Potemkin who who really conquered in the 18th century and right through to Lenin and Stalin who in the Russian Civil War really put all their emphasis on regaining Ukraine essential because of its population um, its its resources and its wheat its ability to produce wheat the grain basket of 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 Europe um, so. You know, what was unusual about this was the completely bold and, and unabashed way that Putin talked about empire for a start before um, he, he made this invasion. And of course, you know, until recently, until World War I, uh, it was a perfectly respectable way to, to build your country was by war. It was only, when the, it was only with the, the, the First World War that it became less respectable, that people began to realize that warfare was not such a glamorous and wonderful thing and that it was, a, it was a grinding destruction of humankind. And that went right way through um, from World War I onwards. And that has suddenly changed again with, with Putin's invasion. War has become, a, once again, a valid way in itself to um, promote power. OK. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to press on this a little bit more, uh, Simon, because, again, I want to uh, take advantage of that encyclopedic knowledge in your head. Because, I, I mean, I... I, I I will buy your your analysis that uh, Russia and Russia and particularly Vladimir Putin right now is is justifying his actions by hearkening back to uh, this great and somewhat imagined past of of Russian history and that is different from the um, what has propelled let's say America's imperial. And I will call it that uh, exploits around the world in the various wars this country has either initiated or or been involved with uh, its attempts to, quote unquote, spread democracy, uh, to spread American, the American form of capitalism. But even that, too, is not unique. Right. I mean, thinking of the British Empire, it was definitely an, an economic empire, but also justified or the attempts to justify it included uh, this idea of bringing uh, the civilizing forces of British culture uh, to the great unwashed of the world, right? It wasn't just exclusively, we want to rule you. It is, we can better you. Yeah, virtually all empires um, start with um, with acts of um, commercial venturing and and astonishing violence. And all empires are established that way. The second stage is the establishment of, of imperial bureaucracies to rule these and a and a, 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 a sort of philanthropic humanitarian justification for ruling. And the British Empire um, in that way is very like other empires um, before it. And it's not, you know, it's the, if you read about the Dutch Empire, if you read about mm-hmm. um, uh, the French Empire, if you read about um, the Spanish and Portuguese empires, all of them have similar ideologies. It's just the British one at the moment is under great scrutiny for all sorts of reasons, which are to do with Anglo-American um, scrutiny of its part of their past of the uh, you know which which is happening at the moment which is fascinating and and essential I should say so yeah all empires are a combination of self interest and hypocrisy and also um, often um, genuinely um, humanitarian projects and and it's it's all about the balance of those different of those different um, human spirits, isn't it? Yeah. You know, uh, fairly recently when uh, King Charles said he was going to uh, request a uh, 
an examination of the Crown's role in the transatlantic slave trade, first I left because I thought, what examination is needed? It's obvious. But to your point, perhaps it's a good thing that that self-examination is is going on. Yeah, this is one of the great things about history at the moment, and I reflect it very much in the book, is that... You know, lots of things about our history weren't really well known or weren't, you know, like, like, for example, slavery. And from the slavery that we, you know, we're obsessed today with Atlantic slave, the transatlantic slave trade that we know of so well because of American history, because of British history and the British role in it. I mean, Britain abolished the slave trade, but also Britain was the dominant player in the slave trade for, you know, for over a century. Um, but at the same time, that led me to look at many other slave trades. And that's the great thing about a, glo- a truly global history. And so there are many slave trades that people don't know about. I mean, for example, the East African slave trade was a massive slave trade, and it was controlled basically by the Amani family from Arabia, which ruled the whole East Coast of Africa for a couple of centuries, which most people don't know about. And of course, you know, when you start to look into slavery, you realise that it, you know, tragically, it was, a, it was an essential part of human existence and societies from the earliest records in Sumeria right up to the 1830s when, when Britain started the process of abolishing it. So let's stick with the crown, the, the the monarchy in the UK for a second, because that one, that'll help us refocus on this idea of families throughout history. What purpose right now do you think not just the crown in the UK, but the family now, you know, coming to a to a point at King Charles, right now is serving for the British people? Do you know, there's a there's a there's a, you you can you can you can apply rational rules to the to the question of why um, uh, constitutional monarchies work in northern European kingdoms, and of course, because it, it's not just Britain. Britain's the most famous, but of course, there's Holland, there's Sweden, there's Norway, there's Denmark, um, and so on. Why do they work? Well, the answer is idiosyncratic, but it does work. And you only have to look at the crises we've had in Britain recently with um, two prime ministers falling, um, Boris Johnson and Liz Truss, and the uh, the experience that was on display when Queen Elizabeth II in her, in her 90s received those prime ministers. And then in the middle of this crisis, she died and was succeeded by Charles III, who's extremely experienced um, in terms of service and duty for decades. And... You know, you just saw the reassuring nature of the soft power of the monarchy, mm-hmm. um, and how how well that works actually. And one can make one can contrast that with France or America, for example, where it's, one is it's, it's extremely hard to remove an American president. It's a lot easier to remove a British prime minister. But secondly, where because um, the presidential power um, remains with the monarchy, if you like, rather than um, rather than as it as it you know as it works in America, um, uh, you saw you saw why the idiosyncratic system of constitutional hereditary monarchy works in a way that that defies rational analysis. Yeah, well, I mean, it defies rational analysis. But you make the point in your book, in almost every one of the families that that you explore, and especially in that conclusion, that new conclusion, that we have to acknowledge what E. O. Wilson famously said is that we still have. Uh, you know, primordial emotions, essentially, uh, and that that really is what drives so much of human history. But there's something in particular about the staying power of dynastic rule. 
I mean, in Britain, as you mentioned, the, the, pro- the appropriate way of looking at it is that it is a constitutional monarchy. The crown has right. power, but not really the operational power that it takes to run the country. What I wonder, by the, by the way, just to note, that was also hard won in British history mm. as well. But what I wonder is if are we have we never fully let that go even in the United States, Right, because you well, mentioned well, one of the yeah. yes. What well, well, I was going to say, one of the ironic things is in the countries like Britain and Holland, where you have a hereditary constitutional monarchy, idiosyncratic as it is, you have no political families. Well, in the United States, which is republican, was founded on opposition to a British monarchy, you actually have a multitude of political families. I mean, you only have to look at the governors of America to see the number of them that are children of governors or or senators, the number of senators that are children of senators. And that's before you even get to national political dynasties, as it, like the Trumps, the Kennedys, the Roosevelts, the Adamses, um, and and so on, the Bushes. So that's one of the ironic things about um, uh, hereditary monarchies and and republics. but you know, better example is India or Pakistan, for example. You know, two massive democratic um, nations, which have been dominated by mm. families. Um, of course, the present Prime Minister Modi is an antidote to 60 years of domination of India, the world's biggest democracy, by the Gandhi Nehru family. Mm-hmm. And and you only have to look at, for example, Pakistan today. Where, um, where the government is actually a dynastic government. There's been, there's a Bhutto in it who is the, I think he's foreign minister today. He is like the son, the grandson, the great-grandson of feudal magnates who have also been presidents, prime ministers and foreign ministers of Pakistan. The prime minister is the brother of another prime minister um, the Sharif fa- from the Sharif family. In other words, you know, um, throughout, throughout South Asia in particular, as well as in the United States and in many other countries, these demo dynasties, as I call them, elected family uh, families to power, re- retain enormous prestige and power. Um, there are many other examples. A Kenyatta, the son of the first president, has just left power in Kenya. Marcos, uh, the, the son of Ferdinand Marcos, Bongbong Marcos, has just been, is, is now ruling um, the Philippines. And there are many, many other examples of this. So... The great thing about demo dynasties, though, is that families retain the prestige, but you can get rid of them and you don't have to re-elect them. And that's good. But the idea is um, reassurance, continuity and a family that we recognize as something like our own. Well, I would say all of this coalesces around uh, the first first presidency or a former president, Donald Trump. And and here's why, because you make the, the exquisitely important point in the book that, um, first of all, what is the most important thing to most people? It is their family, their immediate family, the source of most of the time, you know, stability, belonging, care, um, that, you know, irrational power of love. And in a sense, when you think of nations, when an, you, the point you make in the book is that when na- democratic institutions within nations begin to fail to provide that same, same stability, we as irrational organisms look to family to provide a sense of stability. And that translates itself, for example, into someone like Donald Trump, who many of his most ardent believers feel him as a father figure. And he was allowed to bring in members of his own family 
The Kennedys did it too. But he was allowed to bring in members of his own family to, you know, assist him very carefully, you know, closely in the running of the country. Plus, they behaved, as I would say, as quasi-monarchs because of the way that, you know, they enriched themselves while he was in office. But underscoring all of this, as you point out, is the failure of the democracy that allowed a Trump to put go into office in the first place. He, tell, tell me more about that. Well, I, I do think that, you know, the existence of these dynasties, demo dynasties, is not in, a, in itself a sign that it's not actually contradictory to the working of democracy, but it can be. And it depends on the nature of the, of the uh, office holder. I mean, for example, Franklin Roosevelt couldn't have been more... Uh, privileged in the, in his background, and yet, um, and he, you know, and he he was president for the for four. He won four elections, um, but he, you know, he, he was he was extremely um, respectful of democracy. Um, Donald Trump isn't that. I think you know one of the reasons why Donald Trump was obsessed with people like President Putin and President and 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 Marshal Kim of North Korea is that he. Um, he envies their power and he envies that absolute power. Mm. Um, I think he wants to be an American czar. And of course, that's a very frightening thought. And he said that, he said that you know, even, even in this presidential campaign, um, which hasn't quite started fully yet, but he, he, even now he's already said, you know, I'm going to be a dictator for day one. Well, I don't know many dictators that were only, ha- only, only content to be dictator for day one. They, they normally extended that onto day two and three as well. Yeah. Well, I guess the point I'm making is to, to really raise to the surface something that you write about so clearly in the book. You, you state that family power around the world is resurgent because that kind of power is very uh, characteristic of our species. And, and you also write that dynastic reversion is to be expected when states are not trusted to deliver justice or protection, and that some states, being nations, are becoming absolutist Republican monarchies. T- tell me more yes. about that. Well, the, you know, the, the, there are many, many examples of this. Um, you have to look at the whole Arab world um, some of the some of the dictators who fell, for example, in in the Arab in the Arab Spring in in in, in eleven, um, people like Gaddafi and and Mubarak were were you know and Saddam Hussein um, earlier in the cent- in this century were planning to um, to to make their sons their successors, but all over the world that's happening. You only have to look at Hun Sen in in Cambodia and the Ortegas in Nicaragua. Um, uh, there, there, are, there are many examples, but the most famous ones are um, the Aliyev family in Azerbaijan, um, which has just um, just launched a successful war against Armenia, which very few people have noticed, I think, in 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 um, in the states, and also, um, of course, the Assad family in in Syria. Um, that's the se- we're in the second of those um, in both cases, but the. Perhaps the most prominent are the Kims of North mm-hmm. Korea, and they, they are now, they are now. This is now Kim the third, and there's going to be most likely a fourth in his young daughter, whom he's grooming for power. Mm. Well, Simon Sebag Montefiore joins us today. We're talking about his latest book, *The World: A Family History of Humanity*, and especially about a new portion that he's added to this reissue of the book about what he sees as the possible end of a 70-year unusual peace. We'll have a lot more when we come back. This is On Point.
did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. You're back with On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and Simon Sebag Montefiore is with us today. He's a British historian, and we're talking about his latest book. It's called The World, A Family History of Humanity. And Simon, I want to return to a point that you made earlier, because in, in discussing the 70-year piece, as you call it, the period roughly between 1945 and 2016 or 2000, um, uh, even all the way up until the Russian UV invasion of Ukraine, basically you define that period as um, a time where humanity mostly had a rules-based world order. And that made room for um, many significant changes in terms of uh, civil rights and social rights, etc. We'll come back to that. But what you had said earlier is that that by no means does that uh, indicate that that rules-based world order was enjoyed by everyone, that even during this 70-year peace, I mean, there were, what, tens of millions, perhaps even more than 100 million people who died in various conflicts that you chronicle in the book, other genocides, etc. So I just want to hear a little bit more from you about why you still consider that uh, a, a unique period in human life when the when history being the slaughter bench of humanity, as you quote Hegel, is saying. Yes. Why? Um, yeah, I think I think the, I think it was an astonishing period. I think, as you said, you know, um, not only was there a rules based, you know, the, the idea of international law and United Nations and other board and international bodies were created. An idea of rules was was created, which had never really happened before. They tried it with the League of Nations um, after uh, World War One. That had failed, of course. Um, maybe this one is also now failing, of course, too. I also think you're right that, um, and I make this point in the book, I mean, it really is a world history. It's not just about the yeah. usual suspects in America and Britain and Europe. Um, you know, in, in, in this book, you'll see, that, you'll see that I go into wars like Angola, like Congo, like Ethiopia, um, like Iran-Iraq, in which millions of people were killed. And no one, no one really, often people neglect those and don't mention them because they're not about people that traditionally Western societies have cared enough about. And so one of the reasons I wrote the book was to correct that impression, not just in the 20th century, but in all other centuries too. And that was one of the fun things about writing this book. Um, at the same time, as you, as you mentioned, within our Western societies, this new um, respect for pluralism, for individualism, uh, and for the and for rights and tolerance allowed allowed what I call the great liberal reformation of um, civil rights of 
um, gay rights, of rights for women, of rights to abortion, and so on. All of these amazing achievements and the fact that anti-Semitism um, became a taboo in society. Uh, and so, you know, the amazing achievements, even in our Western societies, and of course that spread to other societies as well, were, were achieved, um, were put into, placed into law during this period. Now, as our democracies are facing um, great challenges, as the rule-based order is splintering um, within our societies, those achievements themselves are now under threat and will all have to be fought for again. Nothing can be taken for granted now. And, you know, the democracies are really suffering from the challenge of what the, the great uh, 14th century Arab historian Ibn Khaldun called Asi Asabiya, which, which he, he, he said was cohesion, uh, a sort of idea of social solidarity. And um, those, that's an essential idea for any society to work. And we've slightly lost it and we're in danger of losing it in our Western democracies. But let me just jump in here, Simon, if I could. But it's those democracy. I'm going to focus on the, the United States. It's yeah. American democracy itself that is that's undermining itself, right? I, I can I won't Correct. buy any kind of argument from someone else who says, well, China did it or Russia did it. I mean, especially for a uniquely powerful democracy such as the United States was and is, the only the only undermining can happen from within, right? Correct, because because societies um, societies like democracies and capitalist societies really depend on, um, in terms of private life and commercial life, they depend on trust, and in terms of political life, they depend on trust and respect for opponents. When they when the um, uh, when political uh, when political feuding becomes um, a zero sum game. Um, and 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 then you lead to the challenge of things like succession, succession in any political society, and it's one of the things that really runs through the whole of the book, is always a test of any society in any system, and you see in Donald Trump, for example, his his challenge to the election, um, uh, that's a very dangerous thing. That is a, that is a very dangerous thing because that challenges the whole basis of trust, of the of the passing on of power, succession, and so. What we're seeing is, is what Ibn Haldun talked about was asabia, the, 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 the decay of asabia, cohesion of social solidarity within democracies. And democracies need that to work. And so that is why we have a feeling, um, particularly in the United States, but also in, in Western Europe and European democracies like where I'm talking from, Britain, um, we feel this is happening before our eyes. Um, but all is not lost. Mm -hmm. these, these, these spirits can be regained. Um, you know, let's not forget that in both of our worlds, but particularly in the United States, you know, you had a you, you had a civil war in which hundreds of thousands of people um, perished, and out of that came a better society at a terrible cost, of course. So, you know, um, and I and I don't think for a second that that's we're going to we're going to approach anything um, uh, that dire um, this time round. But my point is that societies can recover from these crises, and um, when democracies. Uh, uh, mobilize themselves and deploy their forces, um, they are astonishingly dynamic and flexible in a way that, for example, autocracies aren't. Mm -hmm. And and so that's always be worth bearing in mind. All is not lost. Yeah. And you know what? You point out in the book something that's 
that that's fascinated me as well. And it was most, I think, eloquently uh, written about by Steven Pinker, the the Harvard psychologist, yes. that even in this, you know, human history full of war, crime, death, the exertion of power, et cetera, that in, you know, in the past century or so, perhaps actually it's important that it's contemporaneous with um, the 70-year peace. By other measures, human beings are better off than they ever have been before. And this is worldwide, right? You talk about the uh, uh, the increased lifespan that we've been seeing across the world, except recently in the United States, the eradication of poverty for billions of people. Uh, I mean, these are great advancements that won't necessarily come to an end, even if this the seventy year peace does, right? So, correct, yeah. correct. I mean, we're in a we're in a, we, you know we've seen an astonishing period of massive advances. I mean, for example, you know, famine was virtually wiped out in the twentieth century, except when it was caused by by politics or war, which of course is an exception. But um, you know, technology, you know, medical, scientific advances have been astonishing. I mean, there's amazing figures like, for example. Um, in Sierra Leone today, the life expectancy, Sierra Leone in West Africa, the life expectancy of Sierra Leone and other West African countries is greater than it was in Britain and France in around 1900 at the height of their empires when they ruled much of Africa. So that gives you a sort of feeling of the a sense of the vast improvements Life has never been better in terms of Western comforts. I mean, yes, life expectancies um, uh, uh, have been going down slightly in Western um, in Western nations, and also, you know, there are sort of medical challenges. I mean, for example, resistance to antibiotics could become a massive um, life-changing crisis. Um, it could make it could make you know routine surgery unroutine again and quite risky. So there are all sorts of things that could happen, but ultimately life has never been so good despite uh, the wars, the terrible wars that are raging that we're, that we're, that we're agonizingly watching today. Mm. You know, one of the things I love about your book and, and the, the vastness of it, right, in covering almost all of human history and in different parts of the world through the stories of these families is that it's a very powerful reminder that no matter what, right, every empire thinks it's the last and it never is, right? Power flows, um, you know, nations rise and fall. There are great triumphs and great tragedies. It just moves. It flows across humanity. I mean, to the point where, you know, in the, there was a time where People in Europe are still painting themselves blue while great uh, civilizations rose in China and the, the Middle East, Northern Africa. So what I want to know is, are you optimistic about the future or are you still mostly pessimistic about the potential end of this 70-year peace? You know, I mean... When you when you look at world history and you start right in the sort of fourth or fifth century um, millennia centuries millennia um, uh, before before Christ, um, you know from the very beginning that stories appeared, humans worried that the world was coming to an end. And throughout human history, um, you see this that everybody's always convinced that the, that the end is nigh, the apocalypse is imminent. We are living in the end days, and. Um, normally they were wrong. I think that that reflected a sense of fragility, a sense of gratitude, a sense of guilt at human, the human species' supremacy on Earth and a sense of respect for nature. 
um, which is a big theme of the book. But today, it is we are in more peril than we ever have been before. Um, uh, that there are there are crises of of climate change. Um, more immediately, there's there's nuclear pro- proliferation, and that is that could pro- nuclear powers could proliferate very quickly um, if if more powers start to gain um, nuclear weapons. And Iran is at this very moment, you know, hell for leather, um, uh, moving towards you know, producing nuclear weapons. North Korea has already done so. So we are in a great period of danger. And then, of course, um, there's the challenge of AI and mm-hmm. um, and uh, the new technologies, which also are, are a real threat to our systems and our worlds, but also could be great opportunities. And that's the point. All of these things could be great opportunities. Nuclear power um, can be a great way to provide energy. AI can destroy our societies, but it also... Um, could allow us to work less, to people to spend more time with their families. Um, imagine that. Um, you know, no longer to go to offices and so on. Um, do less work. That could be a great thing, right? So, um, so we don't have to be in complete despair at the moment, even though so many terrible things are happening in the world, in Ukraine, in Gaza mm. and so on. And um, uh, we are in great danger. But I am ultimately optimistic that... Um, humankind, um, you know, we, you know, human history is literally a chronicle of disasters, of natural disasters, right. of empires falling, and yet, um, and yet, I believe that ultimately, human creativity, flexibility, ingenuity, um, can solve these problems. I just have time for a couple of more questions for you, Simon, and and I'm going. The last one will be coming back to what you just said about you're not in despair, but I wanted to just slip in a quick economic question to you because in your in your conclusion to the book you you really provide this striking social and historical analysis about how this 70 year peace as you call it may come to an end but that once again just got me thinking of your discussion of how democracies that don't provide justice and security for their people are the same democracies that allow the rise of these dynastic families there has to be an economic question in here as well. I mean, don't, what role do you think that, uh, you know, unfettered capitalism has played in this just as, you know, corruption or the pouring of a, of a nation's wealth into a monarchical treasure chest had in the past? Well, I mean, the key thing is that capitalism is a very, very flexible system that can be um, that can be turned up and turned down. Um, you know, un- completely unfettered, it can be disastrous, as we saw with the robber barons in in the United in, your, in the United States, um, the oligarchs in in 1990s Russia, and so on. Um, but it can always be it can always be tinkered with and changed and calibrated, and that is the key thing. That, for example, you know, capital capital businesses may make um, great fortunes out of AI, for example, but that will only increase the obligation for governments and um, and uh, private enterprise to calibrate the amount of profits that they give back to people. If they don't, there'll be social revolutions. But if they do, social revolutions are quite easily avoided. And that is why that is where economics comes into this. But for your wider point is after 1945, much of the world was, many states were formed in the post-colonial world that looked like Western democracies with presidents and elect, elections and term limits and legislatures. But many of them have failed to provide 
justice and 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 any sense of um, economic equality. And that's why those states are disintegrating now and why they are turning to autocracies, to clan-based or lineage-based um, safety systems. And that's why in huge areas of the world, particularly in places, in places like the Sahel in mm-hmm. sub-Saharan Africa, um, you know, the states that were created by the imperial powers after 1945, particularly after 1960, are now kind of merging into each other. Um, borders are being challenged. And there will be insurgencies and exurgencies. These large areas can be turned into great warscapes yeah. because of this. And so, yes, you know, economic and ju- economy and justice are the two great um, challenges that yeah. societies have to fulfil, and they can be easily calibrated if if there is a if there is good good enough governance to enforce that. Well, your book provides this very rich historical analysis and. Unfortunately, none of us have a a perfect understanding of what the future will bring. So in the last few seconds that we have, Simon, with that in mind, what do you think our duty is to the now, to the present, that keeps you, you know, optimistic, as you said? What can we be doing now? Um, I think think the key thing is, um, since you're talking to a historian, is not to have too much history, to think about how people, how families how young people, how old people want to live now, not to dwell on the past, not to dwell on the history, but to just to ask, how do people want to live today and to try and make that happen for them? That's our great challenge. Well, Simon Seabag Montefiore, acclaimed British historian, author of numerous books, his most recent, which was just reissued with a new conclusion, is called The World, A Family History of Humanity. It's always a deep pleasure to speak with you, Simon. Thank you for coming back to On Point. It's been a joy. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. 